Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I'm sure that most every musical composer or songwriter has wanted in the course of their particular career to write the greatest song that's ever been written. But I have news for you this morning that's already been done. George Frederick Handel did such when he composed his celebrated oratorio called The Messiah, a musical piece that I listen to every year at this time, and many of you no doubt have heard as well. It never fails to move me to deep humility and tears. It is the most sublime and heavenly chorus, I believe, in history. And one reason it is so sublime is because the lyrics are taken directly from the King James Bible. Every song is a Bible verse put to music. It concerns, again, the Messiah, the coming Christ. It's composed of three parts. Part one consists of the prophecies of his birth, culminating with the announcement of his birth to the shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. That's part one. Part two has to do with his ministry and his gospel. And part three, with the final consummation of the redeemed in heaven, the enemies of God in righteousness put beneath his feet. And it is the story of the Bible. And some years ago, I was so enthralled with Handel's Messiah that I decided I would preach a series of messages on each of the verses that Handel uses concerning the coming Christ. And I've tried over the years, off and on, to preach select passages from his Messiah, but I've never been successful in completing that project. The only preacher I know who completed the project is John Newton, who's the author of Amazing Grace. And Newton preached a series of 50 messages, for there are 50 verses in Handel's Messiah, dealing with each passage at the church he pastored, St. Mary of Woolnoth in England. That's quite a marked accomplishment, I dare say. But this morning, I want us to look at one of the verses that Handel uses early on in his Messiah, and it's found in the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, and the 14th verse as we think together for a few moments today about the virgin birth of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, says the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It's a prophecy, a messianic prophecy. Over the centuries, as it were, Isaiah sees the virgin birth. Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. And here's the particular miracle or sign that is under consideration. Behold, he says, look and think about this impressive sight. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this verse is quoted in two passages in the New Testament, particularly or specifically it's quoted in Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn with us there. And it's also quoted in Luke chapter 1. And Matthew chapter 1 is Joseph's side of the story, and Luke chapter 1 is Mary's side of the story. So let's think about the virgin birth of Jesus, his miraculous conception and birth from Joseph's perspective. We'll read this passage from Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll turn over to Luke chapter 1 and read this one from Mary's perspective. Matthew 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, and by the way, an espousal was just as legally binding as a marriage. It was more serious than what we would call today in our modern culture an engagement. But they still had not consummated the marriage. It was a period of one year between engagement and the marriage ceremony in which legally, if one of the parties were to die, the other would be treated as a widow or a widower. So that's how legally binding it was. So it says, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now we can understand that Joseph was concerned when Mary reveals that she is with child, although they have not been married. They have not come together, as verse 18 says, before they came together. And that speaks of the act of marital intimacy. And Mary is now expecting a baby. And like you or I, Joseph assumes that she has been unfaithful to him. But being a just man, he refuses option one. He had two options. Option one is he could take her before the public court and could read a writing of divorcement publicly and have her publicly shamed and humiliated. He could make an example of her publicly. But he loved her, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example. He chose option two which was secretly to write a bill of divorcement, a writing of divorcement, to have it signed in the presence of witnesses, and to deal with the situation privately because he did not want to drag her name through the mud. It's a very honorable 
thing, and it reveals to us the love that he had for her, but understandably, he was hurt. I mean, obviously, his world had been turned upside down. But while he thought on these things, as he decided a course of action to take to deal with his bride-to-be who is now expecting a child, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Fear not, Joseph, to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. It's a supernatural thing. And the announcement is given, she shall bring forth a son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus literally means Jehovah saves. And the reason that he could wear this name is because he shall save his people from their sins. Notice the language of certainty. There's not any hint of doubt, but what Jesus would accomplish the mission of salvation. He shall save his people, not all men without exception, but the covenant people of God. He shall save those that were given to him by the Father in the covenant in a particular and definite atonement. He wouldn't merely make salvation possible or available, but he shall make it a reality. We believe in a real Savior, not a hypothetical or possible Savior, but an actual Savior. He shall save his people from their sins. And then he quotes from the verse I just read in Isaiah chapter 7. Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew adds the interpretation of that. Being interpreted means God with us. This baby that is to be born is more than a mere human. He is God with us. Joseph then, after this dream, rises from his sleep. He did as the angel had bidden him. He took unto him his wife, and he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. So he didn't consummate the marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born Virgo intacta in medical terminology. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin who had never known a man. And he was born of the virgin and his name was called Jesus. Now let's turn over to Luke chapter 1 and look at Mary's side of this account. And here we have what is popularly called the Annunciation or the announcement by the angel Gabriel, beginning in verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. I mean, obviously, this is a unique kind of salute. It's not the typical greeting that you would receive from someone that you just encountered. The 
angel appears to her and says, you've been tremendously blessed. You've been highly favored. You're blessed among women. That is, you have been elevated to the status of superiority over all other women because of the blessing God has given you. And he says, the Lord is with thee. And she wonders what this should mean. She cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, fear not. Now notice, instead of rejoicing at this announcement, she is troubled by it. I would imagine if you saw an angel, you would be troubled too. I would be. And especially the strange greeting that is given. And the angel says to her, don't be troubled. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. Now the same angel that had spoken to Joseph and said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, now speaks to Mary and says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Notice this child was named by the angel, or named from heaven, not named by the proud parents. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So thus far, she's beginning to figure out that she's going to give birth to a king. For he shall ascend to the throne of his father David. He's a king. But more than that, the language indicates now that this king is the messianic king. The ultimate king who would, as verse 33 says, reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So this is a very strange announcement, that Mary is going to give birth to a king. This peasant girl, this poor maiden, if you please, who is still a virgin, she's engaged to be married, a spouse to Joseph, but the marriage has not been consummated. The announcement comes to her that because God has favored her, she has been chosen to give birth to a king. And if she knew the Old Testament prophecies, then obviously she's beginning to figure out that the king to which she's to be blessed to give birth is the Messianic king again. But Mary is skeptical. Now, maybe you're here this morning, you say, Brother Mike, I'm a little bit skeptical about this doctrine of the virgin birth. I mean, it's not scientific. It cannot be duplicated in a laboratory. The laws of biology indicate that it takes a male and a female consummating a relationship in order to conceive and give birth to a child. And the idea that Christianity would claim belief in the virgin birth of Jesus is one of the great hurdles, the skeptic says, to embracing the Christian faith. This morning I want to establish to your understanding why I believe in the virgin birth. And I'm not ashamed of it, and I think you ought to believe in it also, dear friends. But Mary, like many people today, is the first skeptic. 
And she asked the question in verse 34, how shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. Mary herself wonders how this will be. I want to say, when we talk about the virgin birth, and we'll come right back and pick up the narrative in just a moment, but when we talk about the virgin birth, we need to understand that Joseph in the Bible was not the biological father of Jesus. The Bible teaches he was the adoptive, but not the natural or biological father of Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 actually uses the expression, he was as was supposed, the son of Joseph. As was supposed. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include that qualifier? Because Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived and when he was born. And by the way, the earliest prophecy in the Bible is a prophecy found in Genesis 3.15 called the Proto-Evangel or the First Gospel. It's the first promise and the first prophecy in all the Bible, and it's a promise of the coming Messiah, and it hints strongly at the fact that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Listen to this, Genesis 3.15, in the Garden of Eden, when the Lord came to the serpent, and he says, the Lord will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice he calls the coming Messiah the seed of the woman, her seed. Now, suddenly the light turns on in my mind when I read that because seed or biological gender in the Bible is always determined by the male, not the female. Your Bible talks about the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. It talks about the seed of David. Because the male has both an X and a Y chromosome. But here, the Messiah is said to be the seed of the woman. You know, here's an interesting thing. In the Bible, we learn that someone was created without a man or a woman. You know, Adam had neither a man nor a woman in his genealogy, right? Adam was made without a man and without a woman. How did God make Adam? From the dust. You and I are made with a man and a woman, right? We have both a father and a mother. So Adam was made without a man or without a woman. You and I are made by a man and a woman. Eve was made with a man, but not a woman. For God took a rib out of Adam and formed that rib into Adam's companion. But Jesus Christ was made of a woman without a man. Galatians 4.4 4 says it like this, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. So this idea of the virgin birth is referenced elsewhere in Scripture. But the question remains, as Mary said on this occasion, how shall this be? How can a virgin conceive a baby in her womb and give birth without a man's involvement? And the answer is given in the next verse. The angel answered and said unto her, Luke 1.35, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. How will it happen, Mary says? The Holy Ghost 
It's supernatural. Will come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Now that language is reminiscent of the first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, when it says in verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. That word moved speaks of the shadow that is cast by a large bird, as it were, that flies over the water. The shadow that is cast. As the Spirit of God moves upon the face of the waters, broods over the face of the waters, if I can say it like that. The same shadow that is cast, He's generating life so that the seas and the earth and creation teems with life. That same power that was involved in the first creation is involved in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee. You say, well, Brother Mike, still that doesn't explain how. No, it doesn't explain it scientifically. But it does explain it miraculously and supernaturally. In other words, what I'm saying, dear friends, is that the birth of Jesus was supernatural. It was a miracle. Verse 37 goes on to say, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, I dare say this is the verse the skeptic forgets. <laughs> the person who sits in judgment of the Bible. Don't you love the pride of man? How he folds his arms and looks down his long nose with his glasses on the end of his nose. And he critiques the Bible. Don't you love it that man thinks he can edit God and criticize the Lord? Well, the fact is, the skeptic looks at the Bible and he says, it's impossible. It's impossible for a virgin to conceive. But you see, man thinks in terms of what he's familiar with. And the fact is, there's more to this universe than what you can see and touch and feel. There's a supernatural element. And Christianity has historically been a supernatural faith. Now, it's down to earth, that's for sure. It tells us how to live, tells us how to conduct our homes and relationships, and it deals with day-to-day -day subjects like how to spend money and how to behave ourselves in different situations. Christianity is down to earth, but never forget that it is rooted in the supernatural because with God, nothing shall be impossible. My friends, when you begin to doubt whether something is possible in your life, you say, I just don't think that this situation can be resolved. Or maybe you have a trial or a trouble or a problem that you're facing right now that, it, that seems unsolvable as far as you're concerned. I want to remind you that the virgin birth, together with many other miracles taught in Scripture, tells us that with God, nothing shall be impossible. Never forget it. God is able to do what is impossible so far as man is concerned. And by the way, I want to say that the life of Jesus is bracketed by miracles. There were miracles both at the outset and the conclusion of the narrative of his earthly life and ministry. At the beginning, he came into this world by means of the virgin birth. At the end, the bodily resurrection from the dead. My friends, if you take the miraculous out of the gospel, you've taken the good news out of the gospel. 
there's no good news if God is distant and remote from the real world. I'm glad to tell you today that God has intruded into the arena of human history and has made his presence known. And one of the great proofs of that is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So I say it's a miracle. You might ask this morning, Brother Mike, what is a miracle? Now I've witnessed the birth of my children, and you've perhaps witnessed the birth of your children. And I don't care how hard-hearted a person is, when you see that little life brought into this world, it's enough to make a, a grown man cry. It's touching, isn't it? And it's overwhelming. In fact, I think I actually said on more than one occasion, it's a miracle. Have you ever said that? It's a miracle. Do you know, theologically, technically speaking, <laughs> that's not accurate. For a miracle is something that doesn't happen every day. A miracle is an exception to natural law. Now, I know it seems miraculous to us, but babies are born every day. But if a virgin were to give birth to a child, you see, that's an exception to the ordinary course of events. That is a miracle, strictly speaking. But the fact is, 19th century liberalism, which gave birth to the schools of higher criticism in religious circles, many colleges today are staffed with professors who are the higher critics. They disbelieve in the um, mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Bible, and they've tried to demythologize the Christian faith by removing the miracles from the Bible. They, they say that the crossing of the Red Sea in the Old Testament is a misprint. It's a scribal error, they say. And it should have read, they crossed the Reed Sea, which is a little narrow stretch in the northern part of the Red Sea. But they, they couldn't have crossed the Red Sea. They say that's, that's unbelievable. Educated people don't believe in such things, so it had to be the Reed Sea. You know, I've always liked what one preacher said, that would be a greater miracle to cross the Reed Sea in two inches of water than the Red Sea on dry ground. Because the Bible tells us that Pharaoh and his army drowned in the sea. So you tell me that 600 chosen chariots and Pharaoh's mighty Egyptian army drowned in two inches of water? That would be miraculous, wouldn't it? These liberal critics from the 19th century have set out to demythologize the Christian faith. And this school of thought presupposed a worldview known as naturalism. And that's the idea that everything can be explained by the hard sciences of biology and chemistry and physics. Naturalism denied the existence of God, or at least if he does exist, they said he's not knowable. It denied the reality of the spiritual world. There are no such thing as angels or demons, but just what you can see and touch. They denied the reality of the soul, and they denied the afterlife that there is any such thing as heaven or hell. And by the way, the Sadducees in the days of Jesus were the original naturalists. Acts chapter 23 verse 8 says the Sadducees did not believe in angels nor spirits nor the resurrection. And somebody said wisely that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. 
So there have been these skeptics, these people who reason from the bias of naturalism. They, they say, I don't believe in anything I can't see. I've always wanted to ask these fellows, do you believe in electricity? <laughs> well, the next question is, have you ever seen it? And I've never seen it. I don't know anybody that has, but I know what will happen if I stick my finger in a light socket. You know, it's, it's a reality, even though I can't rationally explain it or tangibly touch it and see it, I understand that the process is there. Now, here's the thought. The Christian faith is not a naturalistic worldview. It is a supernatural worldview. It's the biblical worldview that begins in the very first chapter of the Bible with a supernatural event. The first verse of the Bible is the most important. If you were to ask me today, Brother Goins, what is the most important verse in the Bible? I would answer without hesitancy, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know why that's the most important? Because if you can get past Genesis 1.1, nothing else in this book is going to surprise you. You won't worry about how a whale could swallow Jonah or how a deceased body could come back to life or how the sun could stand still over the valley of Ajalon for a period of almost 24 hours or how the shadow could roll backward on the sundial of Ahaz as a sign to King Hezekiah. You won't question the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection of Jesus or the feeding of the 5,000, or the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, or the cleansing of the lepers. None of that will surprise you if you can get past Genesis 1-1, the idea that God simply spoke and made everything that exists out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The biblical worldview begins with a supernatural event. This, my friends, was not something repeatable, something that meets the scientific method, that fits the, the idea of observation and experimentation. It's something that God did supernaturally. And by the way, the evolutionist has to believe in something supernatural too, an explosion in which matter and the atoms and the molecules in the universe advanced from a state of disorder into a state of order and organization, that's more unbelievable and incredible than the idea that an intelligent God spoke and by his own divine fiat created all that exists. And both the Old and New Testaments, if you've read your Bible, you know this, are marked by numerous historical events that can only be explained in terms of the miraculous. What I'm saying this morning is the entrance of the Messiah into this world was a biological miracle. Somebody says, well, Brother Mike, again, I'm skeptical. So was Mary herself. How shall this be? But notice how the angel argues that I will give you some tangible evidence. Verse 36, he says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Now, technically, there's a difference between a virgin and a barren woman. A virgin is someone who has never consummated a relationship intimately with a member of the opposite gender. But a woman that's barren is one who's medically incapable of conceiving and bearing a child. Today we hear such terms as endometriosis and 
other problems that indicates that they're having difficulty conceiving a child. And in the Bible times, Elizabeth was one of those people. She was barren. But the angel says, do you wonder about this miracle that has happened to you? Another miracle has happened. A barren woman has been given a child. She's six months along. Your cousin Elizabeth. And by the way, there's a wonderful promise in the Psalms. I think it's the 113th Psalm. I'd have to check the citation particularly. But it says that God makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. And that's a good study. Sometime go through your Bible and study the barren women of the Bible. Jacob's wife Rachel was barren. Elkanah's wife Hannah was barren. I think Rebecca was barren. And of course, Elizabeth is an old woman now, married to Zechariah the priest. She's the cousin of Mary, and it says, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth. You think it's wonderful? You don't think it's possible? Well, as a little help to your faith, your cousin Elizabeth is now expecting a baby. She's six months along. And of course, the narrative here in Luke 1 tells how Mary then went to Elizabeth's house and spent time with her. And as soon as Mary arrived on site there, Elizabeth said, the babe leaped in my womb for joy at the voice of thy salutation, John the Baptist. Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist. So the biblical worldview begins with a supernatural event with creation. And here we see that God is still in the business of making the impossible possible. As Elizabeth, the barren woman, is also expecting a child. Now this doctrine of the virgin birth is not without its controversy. Again, the higher critics argue that it's impossible. And many of the Bible scholars, quote unquote, I don't really think there is such a thing. I think I'd be afraid to call myself a Bible scholar (laughs) because inevitably people ask questions that I can't answer, you know. Uh, We should all think of ourselves as Bible students, not Bible scholars. But anyway, the Bible quote-unquote scholars, the elite class in academia, say based on that verse in Isaiah 7, 14 where we started, that the word virgin is the Hebrew word alma. You've heard of ladies named Alma. I'm sure this is the root or the source of that name. The Hebrew word Alma, which can mean simply young woman or maiden. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Some of these scholars say, well, that means a young woman shall conceive. Or a maiden shall conceive. It's not technically a virgin. It's not the technical word for virgin. But I want to say there are at least three reasons that that must mean virgin in Isaiah 7.14. First of all, the verse itself, you don't even have to know Hebrew or Greek. The verse itself, the English, is enough to answer it where it says, Behold, the Lord shall give you a sign. And what's a sign? It's a miracle. Behold, the Lord will give you a miracle. A virgin shall conceive. Now, if that meant just simply young woman, like a teenager, a young woman shall conceive. Where's the miracle there? (laughs) But if a virgin conceives, that is a sign. So the English itself indicates the word alma there has to mean virgin. Secondly, the Greek word in Matthew and Luke, the two passages we've read, translated virgin, can only mean virgin. It's the word parthenos. And then thirdly, of the nine times the Hebrew 
term Alma is used in the Old Testament. Never does it refer to anything but a virgin. Never is it used to speak of a married woman. Martin Luther was so confident in the interpretation of Isaiah 7.14 as virgin that he once offered 100 gulden to anyone who could prove to him that the Hebrew word Alma ever meant anything but virgin in the Old Testament. And he added, the Lord alone knows where I'd get the money. And no one took up the challenge. Somebody says, Brother Mike, okay, you've read from Isaiah, you've read from Matthew, you've read from Luke. Is the virgin birth mentioned anywhere else? Well, I've also referenced Galatians 4.4, born of a woman. The allusion is very strong in that verse. It's talking about the virgin birth. How about 1 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, here is the summation of Christian faith and doctrine in these five things he mentions here. And number one on the list is, God was manifest in the flesh. Okay, there's a hint there of the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus. And Hebrews 10.5, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Where did Jesus' body come from? God prepared it by means of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Jewish Virgin Mary. You ask this morning, Brother Mike, why is this important? Why is it significant? Because, my friend, it directly links the sinless person of Jesus Christ with his atoning work on the cross of Calvary. Did you know the legitimacy of Christ's work depends on the integrity of his person? Sinners cannot redeem fellow sinners. If I had been on one of those crosses on Calvary, what I did would not have saved the first person, much less myself. For sinners cannot redeem fellow sinners. And the virgin birth is important because it teaches that Jesus was of the substance of his mother, but he did not have an earthly father, seed is communicated, is transmitted through the male, but Jesus was the seed of the woman. Thus, he escapes a sinful nature, even though he is thoroughly human. And you say, Brother Mike, that boggles my mind. I didn't think you could be human without being a sinner. Well, remember Adam in the Garden of Eden? Before he sinned, he was human. He was a man. God said, let us make man. He made him a man. He was a human before he transgressed and became a fallen human being. And remember, in heaven, we will be glorified. We'll still be people. We'll be human beings in heaven. We won't be sinful humans, will we? So it's possible to be human without being a sinful human. Jesus was truly man, but he was not a sinful human being. Therefore, my beloved, like the blessed virgin herself, as we go on to read in Luke 1, 46 through 55, Mary's Magnificat, we too need a Savior, and we may join her song of praise, saying, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Yes, indeed, my beloved, may we rejoice in the Savior of sinners today, who came into this world escaping the curse of original sin that is passed down from Adam, but yet at the same time he was man of true man and was able to go to the cross to save his fellow human beings, his people, 
from their sins in a perfect work of salvation. listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.